Hi, this is Jill Jarris. From September 2017 through April 2020, this podcast was known as Olympic Fever. We've since changed its name to keep the flame alive, but we're committed to keeping our back catalog available to you. So please keep the name change and this disclaimer in mind as you listen to it. Olympic is a trademark of the United States Olympic and Paralympic Committee, or USOPC. Any use of Olympic in the Olympic Fever podcast is strictly for informational and commentary purposes. The Olympic Fever podcast is not an official podcast of the USOPC. The Olympic Fever podcast is not a sponsor of the USOPC, nor is Olympic Fever associated with or endorsed by the USOPC in any way. The content of Olympic Fever podcast does not reflect the opinions, standards, views, or policies of the USOPC, and the USOPC in no way warrants that content featured in Olympic Fever is accurate. Thanks for listening, and now on to the show. Oh my god, that's a complete freak out. You're just looking at going, oh, yes! You know, because you've gone through this whole process, and it's finally happening. And it's like, oh my God, it's actually going to happen. Mesdames et Messieurs, the greatest festival of our contemporary society, the Olympic Games, is about to begin. This is going to be close. Hello and welcome to another episode of Olympic Fever, the podcast for Olympics fans. I am your host, Jill Jarris, joined as always by my lovely co-host, Allison Brown. Allison, hello. How are you today? I'm feeling a little cold coming on. I think I may need a doctor. Well, good thing we have our doctor on the show today. We are talking with the team doctor today, but... Before we get to our interview, I'd like to say a quick thank you to everyone who sent us some kind comments about our interview with Harry Blutstein from a couple weeks ago. Harry was talking about the Cold War Games of Melbourne 1956, and so we really appreciated your feedback and your sharing of the interview. And know that you can always drop us a line at olimfever at gmail.com or on Twitter and Insta, we're olimfever. And we have a Facebook group, Olympic Fever Podcast. And if you do like the show, please share it with a friend. We would really appreciate it find more of our people. Today's guest is Dr. Kathy O'Connor. For 10 years, Kathy was the team physician for the U.S. women's national team in ice hockey, and she was selected to be on the support staff for the 2006 Olympic ice hockey team. And we sat down with her when we were at the Olympian show in Boston at the beginning of September, and she told us what it was like to get to be selected for the team and what Torino was like. Take a listen. First off, what type of physician were you before the games came up? So I was a general surgeon. Okay. So that was my training. But I was a certified athletic trainer while I was in medical school. Mm -hmm. So I had been doing sports medicine all through undergrad, all through med school. My original plan, and I had it all set up, that I was going to do a family practice residency after mm -hmm. I finished the four years of med school, and then a sports medicine fellowship at Boston Children's. Okay. And then third year of medical school, you do rotations at different specialties. And my first rotation was in general surgery, and I got hooked. I tried family practice. I did a month-long rotation. I hated it. So once I finished my residency, 
I started doing volunteer work. I had done some teaching at Springfield College in Massachusetts while I was a resident and kept my hand in with the athletic training. And then when I finished, my roommate at that time had been doing some moonlighting. The NCAA required physicians on site for all levels of men's ice hockey, not just D1. It was D2 and D3. So Amherst College in Massachusetts had put out a we need people to cover games. And so Lynn was doing it and said, hey, why don't we both do it? We can split the games. We get paid. I was hooked after the first game. I had no experience with hockey, wasn't in my high school, wasn't anywhere within 20 miles of where we lived. I knew nothing about the sport. Hook, line, and sinker. Wow. So I was the team physician for men's ice hockey for Amish that first year. And then they came to me asking me would I cover football as well. So I ended up being the team physician at Amherst College for 13 years. Wow. Covered all sports, but primarily men's ice hockey, men's football, simply because NCAA requires you to have people present. But I took care of people on all teams. Okay. Okay, So so then how did that become U.S. National Women's Hockey? Yeah. So always been in sports medicine, still volunteering, still doing work at the Bay State Games. Oh, yeah. Volunteering covering a variety of sports, but organizing a lot of the stuff for the ice hockey tournament. So I had volunteered, the Massachusetts Medical Society has various committees. So I had volunteered to be on the sports medicine and school health committee. And one of the projects we were working on was, I mean, back then, all the concussion stuff, Mm -hmm. it was, oh, you could go right back in. As long as you could, you know, two fingers in front, you could walk a straight line. I mean, none of this information was available. So the chairman of the committee at that time, Alan Asher, who was at St. E's here in Boston, had reached out to me. They were looking for somebody to help with the women's team under, I think it was the first year, there was an under 22 women's ice hockey tournament that was going to be international. Um, And they were looking for a woman to go. Not a lot of women physicians have any kind of sports training. Oh, okay. So... He got me in touch with Ben Smith, who was the coach. We talked on the phone. I went on the trip. And for the next 10 years, I worked with the women's national team. Wow. Holy cow. So then it was just no matter where they went, you went. Yeah. So internationally, women's ice hockey, at least back in the early 2000s, had the Four Nations Cup, which Mm -hmm. was the U.S., Canada, Finland, and Sweden. Okay. There was the Olympics. And then when there were world championships. Okay. So for the Olympics, you have to work, at least back then, you had to work your way up through the USOC sports medicine. So you had to have a certain amount of experience at the college level in big festivals. Okay. Like the Bay State Games. Mm -hmm. So you had to build up that experience before you could then be invited. And you had to volunteer, but invited to do one or two weeks at an Olympic training center. So I ended up doing two weeks at the Olympic Training Center in, in um, Lake Placid. Oh, okay. It coincided with a camp for women's ice hockey. So they were between, I think they started at 15 and went up to 18 or 20. They also had a camp for the officials so that they would get more experience in training. Mm-hmm. But when you're there, you're not taking care of one sport. You're covering the whole center. 
So I didn't just cover the ice hockey. I was covering the qualifications for the Pan Am Games for canoeing and kayaking. There was a introduction to luge on the dry training okay. for kids, half of whom had never been out of their family's homes and had no idea how to eat and take care of themselves. And yeah, it was chaperone, but... You know, I'm up at two o'clock in the morning because some 12-year-old had three steaks and no veggies because nobody, no mom is sitting there going, you must eat that. And he's there with a stomach upset. So it was quite the experience, but it was it was great because then they could see how you functioned in a multi-sport setting mm-hmm. with a hierarchy with people you didn't know. And they got to evaluate, did you have a brain? Did you know what you were doing? And were you willing to work? Because it was a 24-7 thing. I'd didn't have a day off for two weeks. You're always on call. So it was me and one other physician. And then the, there were two volunteer athletic trainers and then the regular staff at um, Lake Placid. So are you keeping up your regular? Keeping up my regular job. Yeah. So I used up my vacation time to do all of this. I was wow. single at the time. So, <laughs> <laughs> but it's funny. Cause I mean like, does then the OTC, do they just get like free doctors? Yeah. There's no pay. So they just cycle through, man. Mm-hmm. Nice. Yep. So I don't know what the setup is now, but that's right. what it was back then. So what's the team physician do? What are the responsibilities? When you're just with your team. So we're, you know, World Cup or something. So I'm taking care of the athletes, the staff. I would see family members occasionally, especially if we were overseas and we had some issues with families. So it's, it's literally 24-7. So you could do anything from, like, give somebody some ibuprofen to splint somebody because they... Yeah. Okay. So somebody gets hurt. I do the evaluation, figure out where do we need to go from there. You know, do we need to go to an ER? It's different in every country. I've seen some interesting ERs and interesting medical systems. So the question is, is it safer to keep the person not in the hospital in certain countries? Is it safer for us to do the best we can with what we have available? Exactly. When you go to an international competition, there's always a medical meeting. So we as physicians would get together for a pre-tournament meeting. We'd go over, you know, who had what specialties. So Finland almost always had an orthopedic surgeon. There was an OBGYN actually who used to travel with the Canadian women's team. Switzerland and Germany were usually like internal medicine, general practice. Sweden could have been an orthopedic, could have been a general practitioner. I was pretty much always the only general surgeon who was there. So as we got to know each other over the years. So if somebody got hurt, like we were on a pre-Olympic tour and Finland came for a series of games. One of his kids got hurt when we were in Pennsylvania so I covered both teams while he went to the ER with his player. So we, we knew each other. That first tournament I went to in 1999 to Germany, the Swiss team's doctor had a family emergency. She had to leave. Their coach was Canadian, spoke French. And it, in Switzerland, there's three official languages. So between, they came to me and said, could you cover some of our practices? And so I covered some of their practices. When we played them, I covered both teams um, so it's a, it's a kind of a small community. And back then with women's ice hockey, we were a really small community. Did you also have to know all of the 
medicines or substances that were on the doping list oh, yeah. at the time and know yeah. how everything Yeah. You I was responsible for keeping up with the WADA list for banned substances. What were the current rules and regs? What are the regs? It's different if you're under 18 and over 18 about witnessing drug testing. How often was it? They didn't start blood testing until Torino. That was the first time there was blood testing. So for anybody under 18, they are allowed to have somebody in the bathroom watching the witness watch them pee. But you, if the, the girls don't know this, you know, they're under 18. Right. They're so happy to be there. So, you know, I educate them on that. When you have somebody who turns 18 on a trip, then we have to have the discussion about you are now an adult. You have to give me permission to talk to anybody. We have this conversation. You tell me I don't talk to your parents. I don't talk to your parents. They're not happy about that sometimes. But it's no different than dealing with college students. You know, kind of the same thing, the whole confidentiality thing. But you have to, you walk a fine line when you're talking with team officials and coaches. Is somebody able to play, not able to play? So the player and I have to have that conversation so that then I can let them know where are we on oh, the scheme of things. Just, so as an inter, when you're in another country, mm -hmm. but you're an American doctor with an yep. American team, yep. is it American medical law that's... That like, covers me taking care of my folks. So HIPAA or the, the Privacy Acts, you're it's bound enforced. by that. Exactly. Okay. So I've been asked to take care of spectators in other countries. So I can, I can stabilize until their emergency medical people get there. And we had that happen in Sweden at a tournament. Somebody coming off the ice from some kind of rec league thing, she broke her ankle with her skate on. Oh. Yeah. And they asked me, could I take a look at her? And I'm looking at it going, hmm, have you called emergency services? Yes, yes, they're coming. But could you? I said, don't. Let's put the splint on. Don't take the boot off. If you can unscrew the skate, that would be easier for the their equivalent of EMTs. But that town we were in, I needed somebody to get a CAT scan. I had to drive 30 miles to get there. There was no CAT scan in that town. They had just like an emergency clinic kind of thing. But there was no formal medical thing. Whereas in Germany, the orthopedic people don't see people in the hospital. So... We went to get an x-ray question of a broken collarbone. Well, when we went to the ER, they're like, well, you have to go to the orthopedic doctor's personal office. All right, we got to schlep down the sidewalk to their office. They did the x-rays in the office, and that's where we saw the orthopedic. It's just, it's a different system. I need a prescription for ibuprofen in Germany, but you want any kind of herbal something or other, if you can read the labels on it, you can get that. So going back to the doping question, mm -hmm. did you ever find yourself wanting to do something with, with one of the players or patient and you said to yourself, if you were not an athlete, I would do this, yes. but now I have to do something different. Yeah. Yeah. And especially the ones that require a therapeutic use exemption, a lot of the asthma meds and about 15% of all Olympic level winter athletes have some kind of asthma type symptoms. You have to be very careful about what their pulmonology people, their specialists are giving them versus what's on the list. And it changes. And then you get these updates on an email and you've got to go through that list again. Some of our over-the-counter menstrual products have banned substances in them. 
So we have to keep up with all of that and I have to look at and communicate to them because they'll get a list. Nobody knows how to read that stuff. It's like when you get something from your doctor's office and it has to have all that printed. Nobody reads that. So I had to keep up with what was banned, what was not banned. I needed them to communicate with me. What are you on? Even if it's over the counter, it may be on the banned substance list. And even topical. Absolutely. Yeah, we've heard you know, stories of that. Stuff you wouldn't think was banned. You know, some of those um, pain patches mm-hmm. that have low levels of hydrocortisone can make you test positive. That whole thing about poppy seeds making you test Mm -hmm. positive is absolutely true. If you inhale marijuana and you're in a sport where THC is banned because of the calming influence, shooting sports, Mm -hmm. you're at a party, people are smoking, you're inhaling it, you could test positive and end up having an issue. There's all these little things about drug testing. So you started to say about, I know we're jumping around a little bit, with the privacy issue. Mm -hmm. So you you have your patient doctor mm-hmm. confidentiality, yep. but you're reporting to the officials yep. of the team yep. who are making determinations of who's going to play and who's not going to play. Right. So how does that work? Well, the athlete and I have the conversation. Can you play? It isn't. It, I think you can play. It is up to you. You know your body. You know your sport. You know what level you need to be at. So you're not a liability. I want to play versus can I contribute and not be a liability is a different question that each individual has to come up with. So we have that conversation and depending on what the injury is and, you know, they're coming back from something, is this something getting worse? And if the thing is, I can't play, I don't want to tell people that. I don't want to be seen as the bad guy. That's a quandary. You know you can't do it but you're worried about what other people think. Maybe this is a girl thing. I don't know. I'll take the hit for that. We'll come up with, all right, she can't play. That way it's not on her. Have you ever had to tell a player she can't play and she wanted to? Yeah. How'd that go? It depends on the injury because if it's a concussion, they're not in the right universe. They can't process the information. Mm -hmm. Um, And that's regardless of sport, that's always an issue because you're dealing with somebody whose reality bubble is not the same as yours anymore. And then you just, you have to be, you know, rock about it. You will not play. It's not happening. End of discussion. And I've always had that with my coaches. If I tell you somebody cannot play, and especially if it's a concussion, that's what it is. And if we can't come to an agreement like that, I will not work with your team. Now, concussion protocol was very different 15 years ago. Thank God by the time we got to just before Torino, I'm going to say World Championships two years before that, we had already had the at least two international conventions about concussion. And I went to the one in um, Prague as a representative of USA Hockey with the other USA Hockey docs. And we had, it's hard when the dominant sport in your country, which is football, is giving you all sorts of nonsense that we all knew was not right, that we had to take a stand and come up with our own protocol. So it's different women versus men's sports. Women's sports parents want their kids to grow up and have a functioning brain. The guy parents, we want them to go to the NFL. We want them to play professional hockey. Oh, my kid's had 10 concussions. He's fine. 
second concussion on most younger women, it's like, no, no, we're, we're going to shut things down for now. It's, it was, at least back then, a different kettle of fish. Well, there's not the money. Exactly. I mean, women, hockey, money. women hockey players are not going to go make $10 yeah. million. They have to have a real job. They're not going to live in their parents' basement for the next right. 10 years because they can't function. So the concussion protocols that we worked under were more strict just because it was more evidence-based. We had impact testing by then. I had it on my computer. I had baselines on everybody. I think you have a concussion, you will test and you're not getting out of it. And that was the team policy. Is that easier for them to understand when it's just flat out team policy? Yeah. Basically, you're not going to play if you don't follow it. You don't have the choice of saying no. We had a couple of older ones who had were kind of like legacy players who were more difficult and refused to do the baseline testing. They've been on the team longer than me. I didn't have much choice about that. But I told them flat out, if I don't think you can play, it's not going to happen. Never got put in that position. But And nowadays, nobody thinks twice about, you know, this is, this is just what it is because you've grown up with it. It's come through the college ranks. Oh, yeah. It's been a long enough time now. Exactly. There's at least a turnover generation where that's an expectation. Whereas back then, the the impact testing and the computer-based neuropsych testing really didn't become available until like 2000. And then there were those of us who, like, we were the first in NESCAC to use it. And then after two years, we reported out to the other teams, you know, what difference is this making for us? Is it worthwhile? How is it working? And it just snowballed from there. Right. You don't have girls, even in high school, who don't have concussion protocols anymore. Exactly. So they're just not yeah. playing any other way. <laughs> so when did you realize you were going to the Olympics? I think it was in 2004 that they had asked me, would I be willing to go through the process with the USOC for doing it? So... I got my invitation to the Olympic Training Center. That was step one. Because mm-hmm. it, it can't just be the team saying, we want this person. And saying, okay. Because you have to work with the whole team. So I did my two weeks at the training center. And then you need to do, at least then, you had to do a, you had to do an international event under the umbrella of USOC. So in 2005, I went, well, they asked me to go to World University Games the year before that. I think it was in Austria. And I couldn't. So they asked me to go to the World University Summer Games in Turkey in 2005. Totally different sports now. Totally different sports. But I went with um, swimming and diving. So they had their own athletic trainers, but one of them I had worked with at at the training center. Oh, nice. So that worked out great. Three of the docs that went ended up going with me for Torino, a couple of the other athletic trainers. The athletic trainer for women's ice hockey was the associate director of the Lake Placid training center. So I knew Kevin Moody. We had worked together. We had traveled together. So that helped a lot as well. So you have to go through that and show that you can function in a multidisciplinary setting and that you're willing to do the work. And they, they had an electronic medical system and we had a pharmacy that we traveled with. I would have to do the dispensing and everything and the record keeping because it was all by hand back then. When you were done with each mm-hmm. of these stints, did you get like a review? Yeah, you were reviewed. And then, so you had to get approved by the USOC to be able to go. And when did you find out you got that final approval? I got the letter in October. 
of 2005. Okay, so you had yeah. you had some lead time, but not a ton. Not a ton. I had I had already said to them to my employer at that time, um, I may be gone for an entire month. So it was a month. It was a month. You go. I was. I did as much of the pregame tour as I could. You know, kind of back and forth between mm-hmm. work and going, and then you had to commit to the. It was actually six weeks. The two weeks of training camp before, because that's when they made the final cuts, and you had to be available for any medical questions. So we had the two weeks before, and I actually did it down in Connecticut. I was in practice in Massachusetts, so I was able to go back and forth. You a saw a lot bit of I ninety five. I did. I did. <laughs> So we were there and then we went to Torino. There's what they call test events before the Olympics mm-hmm. for different sports. So I had already gone with them to a test event the year before to suss out the rinks. They hadn't built the main rink, the Palace Sport. We were at the Esposizione. It was a four-team tournament, kind of like a mini Four Nations Cup to give them feedback about the facilities. And then Kevin and I also went to the hospital to look at what they had in place, meeting the USOC's guidelines for services to make sure everything was up to par with regards to trauma services and things like that. So we did a little inspection at that point in time. So how was it for the test event? How ready were they? They weren't too bad. They had they were trying to figure out how to do the layout with multiple teams because it was just it was a temporary setting. They had the rink there, but they had to build these brand new capacity stands and everything. They had to figure out ways for security to block areas off, not block it. And usually it's just an open area. I mean, they have like dog shows and stuff in there. Right. So we gave them feedback about how the locker rooms were set up, where things were like ice and water. How far was it to the drug testing? Oh my God, it was this never ending walk. And if you were trying to do that with skates on, uh, you need (laughs) carpeting all the way around. Yeah, the little things. And then for drug testing, we need more than just water and some salty pretzels. Yeah, you need to have some food there. People have to, if you have a timeline, once they tap you, they give me the envelope at the end with who it is. At the end of the game. End of the game. And at the end of every game, somebody gets, yeah. somebody's going to get tested. Yeah, everybody, somebody's going to get tested. So I know who it is. So... When they come off the bench for the end, I give them the bad news. Say, you are going, and I are going to drug testing. So you always accompanied. I always accompanied. You need to have somebody as a witness. When I was in Turkey, this poor kid, I mean, with USA, with the swimming and everything, we had medal winners every event. So I spent a lot of time in doping. And this poor kid from Spain or someplace who was there, like, with no coach even. And I said to him, he knew a little English, I knew a little Spanish, you need to have somebody watch them do this. Do you want me to be there for you? He's like, because oh. he, he'd never done an international event. He had no idea what doping was. He came in, like, second to last. He was the random person picked oh. for drug testing. He had no experience. Whereas... All of the kids on our team have been tested throughout college. Mm-hmm. There's no college sports in Spain. It's all clubs. Right. So there's no random anything. So you give them the bad news that you're doing drug testing. There is a time and you cannot pee between when I tell you and when you're in drug testing. So if somebody insists that they want to shower, there is a witness from 
doping who is there in the locker room watching everything they do. You are never alone. There is a chaperone attached to you. I would never shower. I would just be like, we're going. I don't care. Some people did. Some people didn't. Wow. It depends on what they were comfortable. You know, and if yeah. that's your routine, yeah. Yeah. if that's what you oh, feel like, exactly. your muscles need, I need a hot shower after I come off the yeah. ice to wow. do yeah. just It was about 50-50. Some okay. people just, I've got to take a shower. And some are like, I just want to get done and over with. And so we would go down to drug testing. That chaperone was attached at the hip because people try and cheat. Of course. Yeah, we had to tell them we need a little more support because people have to eat. If you don't recharge in the uh-huh. first 45 minutes after you stop your activity, right. you end up with a, with a um, glycogen deficit in your muscles and you don't warm down properly. And they had bikes and everything. So if people had a, a warm down routine with biking afterwards to circulate, get the lactic acid down, they had those in drug testing. Oh, that's interesting. Um, but I don't think they did it at the test event. I think one of us four... Team docs told them, you know, we need to have this if you're going to expect people to do that. So when you watch The Watchers, Mm -hmm. what are you watching for? Uh, When I'm watching The Watchers, I'm watching to make sure they don't interfere with what the athlete is doing, that they are just standing there and not helping or hindering, that it's just an observation and I'm communicating with the athlete. Are you comfortable with what's going on? especially the younger kids that's that's a freak out we have a little education session you know when i would go with younger teams we Mm -hmm. would talk about it so that they knew what their rights were and not to freak out because these kids have never gone through testing unless they've done an international event and watching having somebody watch you pee is can't be fun is it always same gender yes yeah must be though now with transgender and everything i don't know what the rules are but i gotta expect that they respect whatever the requirements are of the athlete. Okay, so you had gone to the test event. Mm-hmm. You got your letter going yep. to Torino. Yep. How, how was that, getting that letter? Oh, my God. That's a complete <laughs> freak out. You're just looking at it going, oh, yes! Yeah, because you've gone through this whole process, and it's finally happening. And it's like, oh, my God. It's actually going to happen. And then you're like, okay, now what do I need to do? Because it's it's another process, right? So what then? What because did they have to give you a get you a visa or get you processed or what kind of well, processing? yeah, for for Europe you didn't need to have a visa, but mm-hmm. they have to have all your credentials, your passport, copies of everything. For the pharmacy, they have to make sure that you know you have all your ducks in a row with your DEA license. You know, everybody gets additional information about what the current testing protocols are going to be. Before Torino, doping was a criminal activity and you could go to jail in Italy. There had to be government-to-government negotiations so that if you failed a drug test, they weren't going to haul you off to jail in Italy. That was a problem up to the last minute. Yeah, they had to change, you know, for the Olympics. Who was the first person you called after you got your letter? I had just gotten married. (laughs) I got married in 2004 and he knew that this is part of the deal. That I traveled and I went around, I dragged, he doesn't, he's learned about football and he's learned about ice hockey, but he's never a team sport guy. So, and the next person I call was my mom because she's a sports nut. She played in college and she used to come to the college games. 
She okay. knew every Dunkin' Donut between each Nescag school <laughs> and Connecticut. And the parents would be like, your mom's not here. Is she coming? It, the weather's not good. Where's your mom? <laughs> and she came with you to Torino. And she came to Torino. She got a week off from work. She was told she couldn't go. And she said, so sad. I'm going. Find a substitute. And she came. I was able to. USFC was awesome. I said, you know, she can't do this by herself. Oh, you know, there's tour companies. Ludus Tours is what we mm-hmm. set it up with. And they knew ahead of time that she was going to be going to these particular games. So those days where they had something else planned or had other tickets available, they knew she was going. They made sure she was able to get to the rink okay instead of being with the group. Oh, that's But nice. she had a blast. She had a blast. So all the sacrifices to get you through medical school were yeah. worth it. <laughs> yep. So you get your letter. You know you're going. Do you go through processing like the athletes do in terms of getting uniforms? All the and- gear? Yes. Yeah. Oh, what was that like? It was seriously cool. You got a shopping (laughs) cart, and at each station, it's like, okay, you give them your tag that tells them who you are and what you need. All right, this is what you guys get. And the next thing, this is what you guys get. And you have to try it all on. That was so much fun. That was like, this is so Did you get to march in the ceremonies if you wanted to? If you wanted to, but they gave limited tickets for the opening ceremonies. Mm -hmm. So what happened was, is we found when we got there that they could only allow X number of support staff to march with the team. So I ended up not marching. Problem was, my goalie, Chanda Gunn, had light-induced epilepsy. So I always carried meds just in case something happened. And sometimes she could tell she would have an aura. Mm-hmm. Flashing lights did it. And there are fireworks and all kinds fireworks of things. Fireworks and everything else. And it's known. She's an advocate for the foundation. So I had to give everything and quick update one of the physicians that was going to march with them. Kevin, our trainer, wasn't there. He was back manning the clinic because there were events going on, even though opening ceremonies that people started right. having training sessions, and I think there were a couple of actual games going on. So I was in the stands, but I knew where they were going to be. So you know those rings that went on fire? Yeah. Behind there was a set of stands. That's where everybody who couldn't march hung out. Oh, man. So we were like hanging over the railing and yelling, (laughs) ah! But it was cool watching it from kind of behind the stage. So we got to see the torch guy when he was way down on the outside of the stadium coming up. So that was fun. So the tournament lasts pretty much the whole time. Well, the women's tournament was the first two weeks. The men's tournament was the second two weeks. So I'm covering my team. But after they were released to do... And the thing is, while the tournament's on, you're still subject to drug testing. So you still have to let WADA know where you are. So some athletes went to Milan for a couple of days. They took the train. They had to let everybody know where they were because if they showed up saying your name got pulled for drug testing even though your tournament is over the olympics are still going so you're still on the list so yeah that was fun but what i did for the second two weeks is help the men's team don del negro who was the athletic trainer for the bruins i've known him for years working in massachusetts so we knew each other the team physician who was from i think it was from the avalanche he had come to Turkey for the mm-hmm. world, for the um, university games. So we knew each other. So what would happen is if they had, they had two trainers and they had their team doc. So what we would do is they would have practice or games. 
I would make sure I was in the clinic back in the athlete village so that if guys came through, didn't come back with the team, but came before the rest of them got there, you know, staff wise, there was somebody there who knew them, you know, had access to everything. You know, because sometimes they had a nine o'clock game, they wouldn't get back till 11 30, 12 o'clock. So I made sure I was on call for the clinic those nights. But I, you cover, you're a team. I did general medical rounds in the USA house, seeing strep throat, handing out antibiotics. I did hospital rounds. Athletes like a hospitalized, we had a support staff person whose child burned their hands on a radiator because nothing's covered in Italy. And they just wanted to make sure, because I, I told them, I said, what you're getting here is way better than at home. At home, you would be doing the dressing changes on your screaming child. I said, here, they bring you to the pediatric clinic and they're doing it for you. And, and it was wonderful. It was really nice. And we had interpreters with us for all of that. So it wasn't just them. It was, you know, the support staff, families. I, I knew all the families. So if something popped up, doc, doc, can I talk to you for a second? So, and then you covered some other sports. Covered other well. sports, yeah. So when we, there was one doc covering both long and short track speed skating. So when he had an event and had to be somewhere to cover that, they needed somebody to cover short track and vice versa. So we tried to keep the sports similar, you know, bladed versus not bladed. So like I was telling you, yeah, the first time I covered the short track, he says, here's your tourniquet kit. Keep it in your pocket at all times and wear gloves all the time. So, oh, great. And, <laughs> a lot of um, lacerations. No, they're, they're pretty well controlled. But the thing is with the long track, because or the short track, because of those blades being so sharp and so long, and it doesn't take much, you hit a rut and you're, you end up into the padding, which is good. But that thing torques, your boot breaks, something happens. I mean, that's, that's like having a machete. And if there's a pileup, God help you. You have no idea until you untangle the bodies. So what kind of injuries did you mostly see? For women's hockey, it's mostly what we call contusions, being whacked by a puck or a stick, sprains, strains. I mean, they're highly trained athletes been doing this since they were in elementary school. So a lot of the overuse stuff we didn't see. I mean, the poor curling team, it's not like they train year round. And then they're doing multiple games all in a row. They were hurting. They were in the oh. clinic every day because that just wasn't their routine. Yeah. And that's probably totally changed for them. Oh, my God, yeah. No. Yeah. You know, you do a tournament at home, maybe you play five games and you're done. Well, there's different rounds. So that's the big thing. I've had bad cuts that need to be sewn. Uh, we've had some GYN issues that I had to deal with. And the great thing is... When you've got a phone and you have colleagues back home, I can call them up. People knew that I did this and run something by them and say, what do you think? Is there anything we need to worry about? And when you're at a tournament, you have the people that you've worked with from other countries. So, you know, you know what they have as a, a level of expertise as well. We need to use the dentist. Somebody lost a filling. So we used the dental services at the clinic. They were very nice and very enthusiastic. <gasps> this is, oh, you are our first patient. Great. Like, I do not want an enthusiastic <laughs> dentist. I'm sorry. No, thank you. Oh my God, they were so cute. And literally the first five hours we were in the athlete village after we checked in, we had five people pulled for drug testing. So we had to go down to the drug testing in both urine and blood. Oh, So man. I'm sitting there going, okay, everybody, let's go. Nobody leaves until I get done with everybody. 
And then you didn't just practice at your one spot. I mean, we got farmed out to different hockey rinks in the city. So you're schlepping back and forth. Luckily, I never had to do any media events. Yeah, as you were saying earlier, yeah, it yeah. was uh, when Michelle now, Kwan... Kwan decided to withdraw. I was very happy that Jim Mueller was on call for the clinic and she had talked to him about it. And then because of she was so high profile, it went down the line. They had to do a media thing. And it's like, yes. And that was just luck of the draw. That He exactly. was not the figure skating doctor. No, he was the, he was the long and short track speed skating guy. He was a little more used to dealing with the media than me because when he would travel internationally, those teams are oh, pretty yeah. high profile. Yeah. So women's ice hockey back then was still pretty much under the radar. So Torino does not have the best reputation of how things were run. It depends on where you're looking at it from. Okay. Ice hockey wise, I, the, at least the women's tournament went well. We got to and from places. What we wanted was there. Though the outlying practice rink was kind of sketchy because the locker room was underground. So you had these stairs that like went straight down to these underground locker rooms that had no hot running water. And you're doing that in skates. In skates. And then they had to come back up with their skates on to a rink that was like close to the road on all sides. So security were all looking around going, okay, is there anybody here besides our undercover people? We know. <laughs> so that was that was a little odd. So well, what was it like in the village? Because you had to stay yeah, there, right? In, in the Torino village, it was great. I mean, they had food all the time. McDonald's or the cafeteria or we had an athlete's lounge. in a. We had two buildings. So in the separate lounge where we had internet and everything, there was food there. However, in the mountains... They were like last minute. It sounded kind of like what happened with Sochi. Literally, they were still building it as people were trying to move in. So they had no hot food in the beginning. The furniture didn't quite match people's body types. They didn't have transportation completely set up. Which for people, you know, like the the skiers who are used to being on the road all the time with their international competitions in, in Europe, they're used to well-run, you know, got-their-act-together kind of support. And it was kind of sketchy. Not what you would think of when you think exactly. of the Olympics. Exactly. You, know, you think that's, that's the whole point. It's the top-notch, the top standard. Yeah. yeah. So yeah. I don't know what happened with the cross-country folks or anything, the curling people were in Torino, though their their event was outside. All the skating sports were in town. From what I heard, where bobsled and the sliding sports were was pretty decent, though they had food issues in the beginning as well. So the, the downside was that everybody in the mountains for medal ceremonies had to come down to the main plaza in Torino. So in the dark... You're driving down this twisty, turny, oh my God, falling off the mountain kind of road, and then you got to go back up. To go compete again. And then to go compete again. Or go to bed. Exactly. And you're only allowed to be in the villages where you were assigned. So we had to work around that a little bit and try and get people in to either stay over. Okay. Or, I mean, some of them, if their competition was done, would leave. The Olympics, mm -hmm. you know, they try and decompress. They go to Milan or something like that, or some went home. So once they're in Torino, they don't want to go back up and then have to come back down. So I know we had a couple of folks who ended up sleeping on the floor 
because there were no literally beds available, but we would find like mattresses and stuff and they could sleep on the floor. It's in somebody's room. So then they could either make their flight the next day or not have to go back up into the mountains. Did you get to go to the closing ceremonies? Yes, I got to march in the closing ceremonies. And I was actually on TV. How do I know this? How could I pick myself out? Because, you know, the berets that we had? Yeah. I don't know if you remember, the German team had hats. It was like a neon orange, yellow, and green. Right, they were there. They had flaps and they had braids. I wanted a hat so bad. So one of the girls from the team knew one of the girls on the German team. I traded hats. So I wore that in the closing ceremonies. So you have your American I got my outfit, whole American outfit on wearing that German, German hat. hat. So I saw my, my husband recorded and I saw myself on TV. <laughs> Otherwise, you never, I mean, it was just a sea of people because it wasn't by country. We were all kind of broken up. How long did you stay after? They, because the USOC was doing all the transportation, literally the next day I flew out. And they sent my bags to Portland, Oregon instead of Portland, Maine. Oh. Yes. All of it. I get off and they're like, uh, yeah. I said, where are they? Because I said Portland at the Italian check-in. They don't know any other Portland besides Portland, Oregon. So all of my bags went. Did you get everything back though? It did. It took two days. (laughs) That's not bad. (laughs) That's not bad. But they had to put a tracer on it to figure out even where it had gone. And I said, I bet, no, they would. Yeah, they would. I said, check Portland, Oregon and see if they have my bags. <laughs> now, if anybody there had known what was in those bags, all your USA all my, gear. All my USA gear. I had my Torino bag, you know, with the colors oh, and yeah, everything. Yeah. I mean, stuffed with all my gear as well as my medical kit and everything in a in a big uh, L.L. Bean you know, Ziploc mm-hmm. thing. And then my personal stuff. Yeah. But it all found its way home. It all eventually found its way home. So after Torino, did you continue to work? I did. You did? Yep. So that was 2006. And I continued to travel with the national team. My last road trip was, I believe it was 2010, the under 18 women's ice hockey world championships. That's the first one they had for that age group. Because then all the different countries had a critical mass of players mm-hmm. who could play. So there were six teams in that tournament, which was nice. Because you, you got to see all these up and coming players. And now, you know, girls on that team, I have seen playing in the Olympics. Oh, that's very so, cool. Yeah. On the, on the medical staffing side, then, is it kind of like there are more doctors who want to get into the pool and you kind of have well, to rotate have, yeah. around or you, you, have more, you had your time? Yeah, and, there's more women doing sports medicine. Mm-hmm. So there's more of, so after I finished, then the woman they started to work with was, I believe she was from Michigan State. They had a residency thing for the year before the Olympics. I couldn't take a year off uh, yeah. and be with them. But the uh, there was an ER physician there who had done a sports medicine fellowship. So that worked out well. You kind of hand it off. You know, it was 10 years and my life kind of yeah. revolved around my travel and everything. And so it was it was a lot of fun. It really was. It's a so, lot of work, but a lot of fun. How does it feel when you like when you watch Sochi or when you watch Pyeongchang? Oh yeah, when you oh, when you're not Pyeongchang. going and you're just watching. I'm still yelling at the screen, <laughs> and and it's so frustrating because I learned hockey on the bench, so watching it on TV and I can't see what's happening behind the play makes me crazy because so much happens behind the action 
but the TV cameras are focused on the puck, it drives you crazy. <laughs> you know, who's not coming off the ice? Are there too many men in the ice? Oh my God, what's the ref missing back there? All these little things that make watching the game in live, in the rink, so much different. Thank you so much, Kathy. I loved talking with her. I mean, we could have talked all day. We have a lot of deleted scenes that'll be up for uh, Patreon audio because we did talk about concussions and the evolution of uh, sports medicine a little bit more. And uh, they just couldn't fit it into this week's interview. She was great. And female athletes, their parents get worried about concussions. Male athletes just send them back in. I know. It's crazy. I mean, the, just that attitude. Let's toughen them up so that they can never use their brains again. Scary. It's really yeah. scary. And I think the AFL, the Australian rules football, that's been in the news lately because their players, they've got some old players that have really coming through with concussion issues. I know that maybe uh, listener Brendan and some of our other Australian listeners who are in the Facebook group can talk about that a little bit there. But it's really kind of scary to see how this is playing out. But not under Dr. Kathy's watch. Nope, not at all. Thank you so much, Kathy. We really appreciate your time. Moving on to our Team Olympic Fever update. Tofu. This is the segment of the show where we check in with our past guests and see what they're up to lately. And I got to say, this past weekend, contributor Ben and I got to talk with Jacqueline Simino again and see her in person at the Tough Mountie Challenge. Yeah, because you're all a bunch of Tough Mounties. <laughs> yeah, Ben and I went up to Montreal to do the Tough Mountie Challenge, and Jacqueline was an ambassador. And I got to tell you, if you like obstacle course races, and if you like interesting ones, because they did have a lot of challenges that were for Mountie training and that Monty's had to go to. So there was like a little air pistol shooting. There was drag a body. There was all this like push a sled, you know. Wait, wait, wait drag a body yeah like one of those body dummy things dummy bodies so yeah <laughs> and i think we they didn't have they didn't have volunteers that you had to drive no them. no they didn't they had those big like weighted mannequins type things that you could drag that would have been that would have been my only role at this tough mountain oh yeah show. you would not have wanted to do that with the way some people were dragging these poor oh. <laughs> poor dummies they were dragging them by an arm dragging them by the feet and of course ben and i were like no you have to drag them properly underneath the shoulders or whatever they were heavy i think we accidentally chose like the ones that were 180 pounds or more because it was in kilograms and you couldn't make the and conversion we, we had no idea they just all they all looked big to me <laughs> so Jacqueline was in a different wave than us, but we saw her come through into the, the last stadium where they had about half of the, the different obstacles. And uh, when she was on the rowing machine doing the ERG challenge, she saw us and was like, oh, hey. She, so she recognized us, which was really cool. And then after the race, we got to talk with her and her boyfriend for a little while. And she was not having issues with some of the challenges like I did. I don't do monkey bars very well. But she just flew across them and she goes, oh, yeah, I have all this upper body strength from working out. Well, she flings people through the air out of the pool <laughs> without touching the ground. So, yeah, upper body, right. no problem. And then she was telling us about the boot camp she just went to where they'd get up, run 15 kilometers and then go swim five kilometers, which. No, thank you. I think you'd get into shape real quickly. On that now, did they have to do that in sparkly bathing suits as well? Did not ask. I doubt it. I doubt it. You I don't. Want, I bet you can't wear those suits very often because they'll fall apart. 
yeah. with all the sparkles and although they would be weighted it's like a weighted vest yeah <laughs> extra training <laughs> It was great to see her again, and she was so sweet to us, so thank you so much, Jacqueline. And good luck with training for the Olympics. Author Roy Tomizawa will be speaking in San Francisco on November 6th. He's doing a presentation at the Japan Society of Northern California called the 1964 Tokyo Olympics, Japan's Reemergence and the Olympians. And it's not going to be just him. Olympians Billy Mills and Andres Toro will be there as well, and they both competed in 1964. So that would be really cool to go to, and we will have a link in the show notes, and we'll post it on our uh, socials too. If you do have happen to go let us know how it went because we'd really love to hear how this how his presentation is so safe travels to roy exactly and then according to people.com keegan randall is running in the new york city marathon on november 3rd and this will be her first marathon since being diagnosed with breast cancer she is participating in support of active against cancer i'm sure she'll be wearing pink hopefully and uh, if you see her uh, you know cheer of course but also let us know the USOPC is hiring a whole bunch of interns right now, and one of them is an archives intern. So if you are in the market for an archives internship, you could work with our very own Team Olympic Fever archivist, Terry Hedgepeth. And get to be around all that Olympic memorabilia. Can you? St- I couldn't stand it. Really? I would just <laughs> be so distracted by what I was looking at that I would have trouble actually doing the job. If you apply, if you go to the interview, if you wear your white gloves at the interview, because I think... And your Olympic fever t-shirt. That's right. (laughs) I'm sure she would hire you on the spot. Let's move on to our Tokyo 2020 update. We have a follow-up from last week, and last week we talked gymnastics, and it was the World Gymnastics Championship, and so one of the questions we had, because we were taping at the time, we didn't know the answer, what was going on with the Uzbeki gymnast, Oksana Chutsevitsina, because she was looking to qualify for Tokyo 2020. And I am so happy to report that the 44-year-old did qualify for her eighth Olympics, And she is now the oldest gymnast in history to qualify for the Olympics overall. This is so exciting. I know. It's like I, I, you know, you're you're bursting with pride kind of thing. And when you watch her, at least for me, because she was an old Soviet gymnast. I mean, we're going back. She was training in the 80s and I can still see it. Yeah. I still see it's a throwback to watch her. It's great. And then listener Brendan posted in our Facebook group that equestrian Andrew Hoy of New Zealand has also qualified for his eighth Olympics as well. It's going to be a big Olympics with people who have been there for multiple. Right. Kim Rohde is going back for. Mm -hmm. I think this is seven. Seven. Yeah. Yay, old Mm -hmm. people. Right. Over the last week, CoSport has dropped some more tickets, and it was kind of cool because uh, they had they had announced that there was going to be another ticket sale, so there was a whole, like, get in the queue thing and pop on, and they did have a whole lot of tickets that were available. I ended up getting some team archery, so I will be seeing the women's team competition. I was very excited about that. But uh, I kept getting alerts from the ticket robot that we reported about that boxing tickets were coming up. And I wasn't able to get to a computer, but I would have been interested in seeing the boxing tournament. The boxing tournament is going to be in Kokugigan Arena, which is the spiritual home of the Japanese national sport of sumo wrestling. 
And so the sumo bots are in the center of the arena and the seating is all around it. They had four different categories of seating for this event. One of the categories of seating is called masu seating. And these are box seats that have two people per box and they're surrounded by a low fence, but the spectators have to take off their shoes and they have to sit on the floor to be in these box seats. And I just thought that was the coolest thing to have not only be able to see something in this very traditional venue, even if it wasn't sumo, but to also have to adhere to those traditions of the seating. If you do have boxing tickets and you do, you know, even if you're not in the master seating, let us know what it's like. Yeah, I'm curious as to like, where is it? Because if it's on the floor floor, Mm -hmm. you wouldn't see much because you'd be so below. But if it's sort of eye level, I'd be interested to see if we can see it on the television. Yeah, that would be cool. If they make a big deal about it, I wonder if they will. Something to take note. There was a major typhoon that hit Japan this past weekend, and the Sports Bureau for Tokyo 2020 Executive Director, Representative Masao Hijikata, said, and this was reported in Inside the Games, that there was minor damage to the Olympic venues. So there's been some fences that have blown over, but pretty much everything else was largely unaffected. So that's good. I know I saw in the news that Nagano got hit with a lot of flooding. So I haven't been able to see what happened has happened to those Olympic venues or if there's a museum there, what's been going on with that. But I'm glad to hear that, that the Olympics wasn't affected, but it's been really a tragic event that they're going to be dealing with for some time in that country. Yeah, the rest of the country got hit very hard. And then, as we've been talking about and has been in the media constantly, hey, there's going to be a lot of issues with heat because we're in the humid season of Japan during the Olympics. And the IOC just announced that the marathon and race walking events will be moved to Sapporo which was the home of the 1972 Winter Olympics. It's up in the northernmost prefecture of of Japan, and they're going to be significantly cooler up there. So during the games, the IOC said that it could be as much as 5 to 6 degrees centigrade cooler than Tokyo. Right, and for marathoners and and long-distance race walkers, that's huge. Yeah, it's huge. So there's been a working group going on called the IOC Medical and Scientific Commission Adverse Weather Impact Expert Working Group. What's the acronym for that? (laughs) IOC Working Group. (laughs) (laughs) Excellent. So they've made some announcements about how they're going to deal with the heat. So for athletics, anything that's 5,000 meters or longer, they're going to be scheduled in the evening sessions they won't be in the morning rugby all morning games had to finish before noon mountain biking will delay its start time to 3 p.m and they're just going to keep looking at the schedule and looking at the weather and and dealing with the test events and figuring out how to make this as comfortable for the athletes as possible and workforce and officials and spectators right because all the it seems like the indoor events are what is going to run during the day Mm-hmm. And then everything else is going to get pushed, right? Which could make it that you could probably do like eighteen hours straight of events oh, if you wanted to. <laughs> you know, start with a rugby game, wow. go to some swimming, you know, go to something indoors, and then the nighttime events in the stadium. Good luck to you. If you do that, let me know. 
hey, it'll be like Disney. You you go to Disney, you are there for a rope drop, and you are there for the fireworks. That's sounds my like test you could do this. This is like <laughs> it's my test event. I can right? do that. Load me up with water and a fanny pack, and I am all set. <laughs> Well, that will wrap it up for this week. Tell us what you thought of Dr. Kathy's Olympic experience. Email us at olimfever at gmail.com or call our voicemail hotline at 530-763-3837. That's 530-70-FEVER. Or you can hit us up on Twitter and Insta at olimfever. Next week, we are talking karate. Hiya. Excited to look at a new sport. Thanks so much for listening. And until next time, keep the flame alive. Let's toughen them up so that they can never use their brains again.